Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. Our guest today is Dr. Evian Ladig, a researcher at the University of Oslo with the Centre for Research into Extremism. Thank you very much for joining us, Evian. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you've recently been awarded your PhD. Your dissertation was on the subject of connections between Hundutva activists in India and Brexiteers and Trump supporters within the Indian diaspora in the UK and America. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what you found in your research and how you went about finding it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I started off doing my PhD, I was planning to look at uh, Hindutva or Hindu nationalism within India and how it's become very much a middle-class urban youthful phenomenon. But then one month after I started my PhD, Donald Trump was elected to the presidency of the US (laughs) and, you know, that Earlier that year, the Brexit referendum had had passed as well. Um, So I ended up writing an op-ed looking at Indian Americans that support Trump because, you know, only three weeks before the election was held, uh, you know, Trump held a rally specifically targeting Indian Americans. And I was quite surprised that a president so soon to the election date would hold a rally for a population that essentially constitutes less than 1% of the US population. So I did some digging in and what I found was was really quite fascinating, which was this emergence of global connections of the far right. So I mean, my dissertation, I do this through looking at diaspora networks, but also how social media spaces play an essential role towards you know, connecting these shared far right agendas. Uh, so I do that by looking at Hindu nationalism in Modi, and uh, how that connects to uh, Indian American support for Trump in the US and British Indian support for Brexit in the UK. Trump and Modi have been considered by some to be political colleagues. What do you understand? What are the similarities and differences between their two, their politics and, and their rule? Yes, I mean, what came across quite often in my research was how many Indians, as well as Indian diaspora supporters of these of these two figures, uh, would often call them Modi Trump bye-bye, which basically means Modi Trump brother brother. You know, there is this shared sense of like how these two figures are strong men who are sort of according to them, self-made figures, although, of course, with Trump, we know that's not necessarily the case. 
But there's this sort of authoritarian masculine persona that, that they both embody, which, which a lot of um, you know, Indians and Indian diasporic individuals really like. Uh, not to mention the sort of you know capitalist principles that these two men represent as well. You know, Trump you know tries to look towards an America First agenda, which which necessitates you know sort of a, a make America great again myth. And Modi sort of does that as well. He has this Make in India initiative that sort of appeals to an India which is looking towards achieving this techno-economic powerhouse status in the 21st century. And similarly with Indian Americans, I mean. Most of them are disproportionately entrepreneurs or involved in business fields, so they really liked, you know, Trump's stance on lowering taxes and so forth. So there's certainly an economic element at play, but also a very cultural, sort of masculine uh, element there as well. One of the observations you made in your dissertation was that some members of the Indian diaspora sort of situate themselves as a well-integrated minority group, so in contrast to Muslims or to illegal immigrants. At the same time, I guess many on the radical right are just as disdainful of Indians as they are of other non-white people. Uh, how does these? How do these members of the diaspora uh, manage that dissonance? Yeah, I think it's a really important uh, sort of contradiction that you point out there. I, I suppose that the one thing that does unite perhaps the the more extreme elements of the far right to you know don't necessarily see Indian Americans as as being part of uh, their nation or you know part of their identity is that what I came across was a very strong anti-Muslim Islamophobic stance which you know taps into the Hindu nationalist narratives and also taps into the the Trumpism uh, that we see in the U.S. today. But yeah, I mean, I don't actually have a really good answer for that, despite you know three years of, of writing this research because. I think for many Indian Americans, it's the fact that they can hold these contradictory worldviews and that there's always a sort of othering process at play. And that sort of provides a basis for them to unite with, you know, these exclusionary uh, far right nationalists that we see today. I guess coming from the opposite direction, uh, for some on the, you know, the very radical right, particularly those engaged with sort of esoteric ideas, uh, India looms large in the imagination in terms of, you know, the myth of the Indo-European Aryan people brought low by pernicious outsiders. You can look at people like Dugan and Steve Bannon, who've flirted, I guess, with the idea that we're in the Kali Yuga, the age of turmoil predicted by ancient Hindus, that Trump is sort of a manifestation of Kalki, the final avatar of Vishnu. And people like you know Richard Spencer saying that uh, white people can't culturally appropriate yoga because uh, Brahmin are actually white. So as the kids would say, I guess they stan. Uh, but to what extent is that uh, standage reciprocated? Yeah, I mean, this, you've touched upon, I think, a very esoteric element of, of the extreme far right. I mean, yeah, certainly we look at figures like Greg Johnson, who, who publishes the Countercurrents White Nationalist Publishing House, and uh, you know, Greg Johnson has a whole archive of works by Savitri Devi. So she was this French Greek intellectual who, who traveled to India and was fascinated by ideas of, of Aryanism stemming from the Indo-European tradition. And and you're right in pointing out that certain intellectual figures like Dugan and Bannon, who you know Bannon himself wanted to create a Breitbart India in 2015. He was sort of enamored by the rise of of Modi at that time, but you know ultimately it didn't take hold. There has been yes a, a sort of fascination among certain 
uh, intellectual thought leaders within the extreme right for India based around this notion of a shared Aryan identity. I think within India itself, though, there's not actually... That's sort of been confined to, I think, certain metapolitical figures within the movement. You know, it's not, I think it's, it's just so esoteric. It's so intellectual for, for most Hindu nationalists. I mean, the common foot soldier probably has no idea about this um, sort of racial connection that, that's, that's pretty confined, I think, to some of the um, armchair intellectuals of the extreme right. Both um, Modi and Trump present themselves as very masculine and masterful figures. I wonder how does gender or how does gender inform their support base, um, especially Modi, within India and outside of it? And also how does a figure like Tulsi Gabbard fit both within that gendered category, but also in terms of the, I guess, right-wing politics, left-wing politics of the uh, Indian diaspora? That's a fascinating question. Um, I think, you know, like most far-right movements, there's a very traditional view of gender. It's a very biologically determinate view that, you know, men are viewed as the, the protectors of the nation, as, you know, masculine figures, and women are viewed as subservient and as fulfilling sort of domestic roles like child-rearing. So certainly within India, we see that uh, these, these gender norms do take place, and particularly amongst Modi supporters, who tend to be... Well, I guess there's two types of supporters. We see... The sort of middle class urban youth, those in, employed in the tech sector who like Modi's sort of populist message, because it's important to recognize that, you know, Modi, um, even though he sort of grew up within the Hindu nationalist apparatus at the age of nine, he joined a paramilitary organization called the RSS. So he quickly rose through those ranks and then through his party, the BJP. So, I mean, he represents a sort of upwardly social mobile figure, and that's quite inspiring to many young men in India who are part of this growing new middle class. So uh, they, they sort of aspire to be a figure like Modi. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have those who are traditionally more middle class who have always had this legacy of sort of a Hindu nationalist protection against the Muslim other. At the same time, you do see, for example, uh, certain ideas uh, revolved around, you know, young women being the so-called daughters of, of Mother India. So in Hindu nationalism, there is this idea that uh, India is called Bratmata or, or Mother India, um, and that women should be viewed as the daughters by extension of the nation and that they must be protected by hypersexualized young Muslim men who engage in this type of love jihad, where they seduce and uh, convert young Hindu women into Islam. But at the same time, you know, there's a really interesting female-only organization uh, within Hindu nationalism where young women are taught to engage in combat drills and uh, shooting drills. So it's sort of an interesting idea that, you know, there's s some women who are viewed to be sort of subservient, and then, you know, there's uh, other women who are sort of engaged in what we might consider to be more traditionally masculine activities. Uh, when it comes to the diaspora, though, I think this these gender norms do shift a little bit. They're still there, but um, something that I was surprised about by when I came across in my research was how I sort of expected it to be overwhelmingly men that would support both Modi and Trump, but it actually be like a 50-50 gender divide. 
which was I was just kind of surprised by. Um, and I think a figure like Tulsi Gabbard, like you mentioned, is, is a really good example of that. I mean, her her family has you know deep connections to Hindu nationalist organizations in the U.S. And I do find it sort of interesting how there's certain aspects of the left who who support her, and I think there's a lack of recognition in terms of the background that she and her family has in supporting what is essentially a exclusionary nationalist political movement within India. And part of that is because I think, you know, many of us uh, who live in in Europe and in North America and Australia, there's this general lack of recognition about Hindu nationalism as this far right movement in India and sort of, you know, how it manifests itself. Gabbard's also been uh, accused, I suppose, of being a little too close to Russia and to sub- the subject of Russian influence. And one thing that occurs to me is that in India's modern history, uh, as I understand it, it was a part of the non-aligned movement for many years and was arguably as a whole uh, more sympathetic to the East than to the West. Following the collapse of communism, is, is there a, a shift or has there been a shift in terms of the I guess, general political direction within India? I would say that the year 1991 was pretty significant for India. So that's when India opened up to neoliberalization. Uh, This also became an opportunity for the BJP, which is Modi's party, uh, to sort of seize upon this growing sentiment within India about, you know, free market principles towards capitalism, towards privatization and so forth. Yeah, I think that, you know, this has also been a couple decades in the making. And now, you know, uh, you know this neoliberalist mindset is, is very popular within India. And Modi sort of seized upon that, that opportunity to present, in particular, India as this techno-economic powerhouse in, in the 21st century. So it's, it's a growing sector for, for India and for its uh, diaspora as well. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of an interesting point in terms of, you know, there hasn't always been this very neoliberal mindset within India. If you look before 1991 and during the Cold War, it's exactly as you mentioned, you know, India sort of was part of this non-alignment movement. Neoliberalism generally is a a doctrine or a practice that tends to favour the rich over the poor. I wonder, you know, what are the class dimensions? Uh, How does uh, caste or caste function in terms of the... Modi's appeal, and is it the case that the bulk of his support comes from the urban middle classes? You know, what about the uh, the peasantry, for example? So I will say that in its origins and throughout history, Hindu nationalism has been predominantly an elitist phenomenon um, and a middle class phenomenon. So it's had this legacy for a while amongst the middle class. And sort of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Modi is this seen as this socially, upwardly socially mobile figure who the growing new middle class sort of aspires to. You know, I think for for many within this new middle class, it's this idea that, you know, Hindu nationalism used to be a very elitist movement. And, you know, by default, through Modi, there's this potential there to sort of achieve that, that status within Indian society. So it's sort of telling to see how uh, the country's you know, economic transformations have been intertwined with this sort of socio-cultural aspirations. Uh, but in terms of the peasantry in Modi, I mean, that's, um, yeah, this isn't 
precisely my area of research, but it's, it's certainly it's certainly an interesting one. I think, you know, Hindu nationalism and the BJP, they're very good at sort of adopting their narratives according to uh, different classes and different local conditions, uh, depending on where they might campaign or where they might rally. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly an expert on this topic, but it'll be interesting to see as the middle class in India continues to grow and as we continue to see more of a rural migration to urban centers and how this you know, might impact the sustenance of, of Hindu nationalism over time. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We are talking to Dr. Evian Lydig about Hindutva, fascism and connections to the global far right. You've written about the online cultures that have been created to promote Modi and uh, Hindu nationalism. And just a, a few months ago, Uh, in light of the recent passage of legislation in the Indian Parliament, which arguably seeks to marginalise and even criminalise Muslim populations within India. In Melbourne, there was a solidarity demonstration organised in opposition to the legislation. This was advertised on Twitter and it was swamped by hundreds, seemingly, of highly or very hostile responses. And reading through these responses, I found it was sometimes difficult to discern which of them were the responsibility of, uh, you know, uh, actual individuals and, and which were the production of bots. So my question is, how does the far right in India and uh, outside of India deploy online criticism to silence critics? And is there evidence to suggest that this kind of activity either receives the endorsement, tacit or otherwise, or the support of the Modi government? So... Hindu nationalism and and the BJP, they've essentially recruited what's known to be as internet Hindus or cyber Hindus. And these are predominantly men who are recruited in order to promote pro-Modi and pro-Hindu nationalist content on social media, uh, as well as sort of anti-Muslim and in particular anti-Pakistan content uh, as well. What's interesting about this phenomenon of internet Hindus is that it's essentially a massive network of keyboard warriors who are employed by the BJP to disseminate this propaganda online. So it's a very professionalized operation, which is not only employed within India, but within the diaspora at large. Um, Many people may not know this, but, you know, Modi's uh, communications team was based in the U.S. and his, you know, his head of, of communications and of social media operations was educated in the U.S. So there's a, a massive sort of global network here that's um, supported by the by the diaspora. And, you know, this is something in, in my research, which sort of led me then towards understanding, you know, how there could be certain connections between Hindu nationalism and, and other far right networks, uh, particularly those within the West, because of this very professionalized and slick online operations campaigns. And it's sort of how Hindu nationalist narratives then get merged within the sort of far-right narratives that we become familiar with within Western countries. One of the points you made in your dissertation is that uh, one way the diaspora has influenced Hindutva organisations in India is by bringing back the language of multiculturalism which is then sort of repurposed to uh, suit an exclusionary politics. I guess one example of that would be the Citizenship Amendment Act. 
could you speak to how multiculturalism is understood or how it's weaponized in India as opposed to, say, in Australia or the US? Yeah, so I sort of argue in, in my research that the language of multiculturalism, so this idea of a, a politics of, of recognition based around certain uh, ethnic or religious minorityhood, has, has traveled um, from diaspora Hindu nationalist organizations towards India. So this notion of, let's say, a majority versus minority discourse, which I think is quite ironic considering that in India, Hindus are 80% of the population. So this idea that they're somehow victimized uh, minorities is is a bit mind-boggling to me. I mean, other than that, I haven't really seen too much with regards to how the diaspora has sort of influenced Hindu nationalism within India, besides, you know, things like like fundraising and so forth, and perhaps uh, IT skills. But, you know, but I think that there's a certain shift at the moment when it comes towards, you know, how the far right is responding to narratives like multiculturalism. I mean, when we think about how the far right views multiculturalism, they often talk about it as being a failure, as being, a, you know, as quote-unquote having appeased certain religious minority communities within Western countries. And so I also thought that this was sort of a paradox because there are so many diaspora Hindu nationalist organizations in Western countries which have benefited from multiculturalism as, as a way of securing representation within you know, the lobbying apparatus or through grassroots mobilization and campaigning. Then, you know, I sort of realized over time that, you know, despite being beneficiaries of multiculturalism, diaspora Hindu Hindu nationalist organizations do sort of find through this sort of sort of strange manner, they sort of find that, you know, at least they can consider themselves to be quote unquote well integrated minorities within Western countries, uh, as opposed to perhaps the so-called unassimilating tendencies of of Muslims. Um, and this provides a sort of basis of commonality with, with far-right movements that we see in, in Western countries. We're in the midst of uh, a global health crisis, I'm sure you've noticed. Uh, yeah, is there? The global far-right, in uh, at least in um, the West, it seems, is uh, using it to you know, gear up for conflict with China. Uh, how is the Indian far-right tackling uh, coronavirus and to what ends are they using it? Yeah, I mean, I think we're starting to see a sort of um, global merging in how far-right movements around the world are sort of employing and sort of um, hijacking the fears and anxieties around the coronavirus. So, I mean, in India, there there was, for instance, a congregation of Muslims who met for sort of an annual Islamic conference. And shortly after that conference took place, uh, there was a massive spike in the number of positive coronavirus cases from the attendees at that conference. Uh, this was in March. So, I mean, this instigated a sort of massive coordinated response from the Indian far right to essentially promote these anti-Muslim coronavirus conspiracy theories about how this was essentially a tool being used by Muslims and uh, a biological tool used by Muslims, that is, uh, in order to, quote, sort of Islamicize India and sort of create the the downfall of Hindus. So it's it's quite similar to other sort of far right conspiracy theories that we see circulating at the moment when it comes to coronavirus. I mean, not to mention, of course, the sort of vehement uh, sinophobia. So this anti China conspiracy theories that you know we've we've seen around the world as well. Something which I picked up upon 
recently is there's been these massive social media campaigns. So using hashtags like Corona Jihad, which is sort of a play on the, the love jihad theme as sort of uh, a way of sort of circulating viral misinfor- misinformation videos um, about how Muslims are supposedly using the virus as a biological weapon against Hindus. Um, and, you know, I was recently looking at like 4chan and I was quite surprised to see this collaboration between uh, users based in India with you know, far right users based all over the world and how they're sort of creating these, these shared narratives around these anti-Muslim kind of conspiracy theories. So I think that we might consider Hindu nationalism in India to be a domestic matter, but there is this growing trend towards these transnational connections that I think we need to, to take seriously um, as, as a threat, uh, as as we have with, with other sort of far-right movements. Social media companies are notorious for failing to tackle uh, disinformation, lies, propaganda. And I'm wondering that um, if outside of government intervention, are there other ways that civil society actors can intervene to slow the spread of this disinformation and uh, other destructive viruses? Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to India in particular, you know, we have seen, for example, companies like WhatsApp sending out a sort of counter disinformation campaign. So, um, and this is particularly important because, you know, India is WhatsApp's largest market. And so it's the primary, it's the primary app form of communication that, that most people use. So, I mean, I think, you know, that was certainly a good step on, on behalf of WhatsApp and I guess Facebook by extension to, to create this tool to help counter the spread of disinformation. But I think it's just, it's just really a, a band-aid. It's, it's targeting a symptom and not the cause. Um, I mean, part of the problem is that there's certain content that's being created on other platforms that I saw uh, for instance, Hindu nationalists using TikTok and Telegram and Discord and how content that emerges uh, or that originates on these platforms are then being shared on WhatsApp. So, you know, there's an issue when it comes to governing these these platform spaces, because at what point, who who decides on the coordination of of regulation um, across platforms? I think it can be quite difficult. But in terms of civil society actors, you know, just... Uh, us and, and the public, you know, I have seen, you know, certain creative strategies that we've used in order to counter the spread of disinformation. And it's not just about education and literacy on platforms, but it's also in terms of challenging this information, whether it's through humor or through satire, in a way that I think, you know, encourages critical thought and not simply just uh you know, censoring content or taking down content. And I think, you know, there's, this is perhaps the most effective way of being able to counter, you know, these disinformation campaigns that are being created by far-right actors. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Evian. Uh, if people want to find you online, where could they do so? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Evian Leidig, or you can go to my personal website, evianleidig.com. That was an interesting conversation, Cam. It also brought to mind the fact that we've spoken to uh, someone else several weeks ago about uh, India. Yes, Shudabrata Sengupta. If people want to hear that conversation, they could go to 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran and download the podcast alongside podcasts of all of the other shows that we've done. True. And um, Cam, um, before we go, we are thinking of doing a, a special episode where we answer 
listeners' questions. Is that correct? That is correct, Andy. So if you have a question and you're a listener, get in touch uh, either by Twitter. You can tweet at Slackbastard or at Sexenheimer or send a message to the Slackbastard Facebook page. Yeah, non-abusive ones, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, and only if you're a listener. Yes. (laughs) Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later.